this podcast, we're breaking the silence. Welcome to Mental Health. It's time to talk. Here's your host, Alan Kaler. Hello, everyone. Thank you for taking the time to tune in. On today's show, we have a university professor. We have a musician. We have a proud father, proud husband, proud grandfather. And we have someone who has definitely found his voice when it comes to mental health. Welcome, Murray Drew. Alan, great to be here. It's interesting, Murray. Your your story is featured in the book, Mental Health is Time to Talk. And I have to say, it is one that I refer to frequently because it is just so powerful. And I love how you have been able to rewrite so many scripts when it comes to masculinity. And I think for me, Murray, the line that stands out the most is you always said that you would rather die than ask for help. And that, that's deafening. What what exactly led to that statement? Well, you know, um, the hardest thing to admit, I think, uh, I'm a child of the uh, 50s and 60s. Uh, mental health wasn't talked about back then. It was, uh, you know, polite people didn't talk about it and good families uh, didn't have it. So, uh, you know, that's how I was raised. So it was, uh, there's no way I was ever going to admit that I was having a problem. So I guess what I managed to do was turn it back on the world and say the rest of the world is having a problem. And uh, so, you know, that that meant I could do a lot of uh, things like getting mad all the time at the frustration of having to deal with idiots when all along, I, I guess I was the idiot. <laughs> so... So, you know, it's uh, something that, you know, my generation really didn't want to admit. That's not, men didn't have uh, mental illness. So, uh, you know, I'd stig stigmatize myself. So there was no way I would admit that, almost to the extent of losing everything. Yeah. And you talk about that projection, that need to almost live out here or to blame others. And that is a common theme when it comes to men struggling with mental illness, even to this day, right? It's, it's difficult to go within to want to look at actually what's taking place. Yeah, absolutely. So if you'd asked me if I was depressed, I, I wouldn't have thought so. Uh, because, you know, we all think depression is this one thing. It's you're sad, you want to go up and sleep in your bed all day. And sure, that's depression. But for me, it was more kind of irritability. So like I could, uh, I could get mad just like that, right? So, uh, and of course your family gets to uh, see most of that because they live with you for the longest. So, you know, I could hide that when I was at work, but of course you'd come home and then, uh, you know, you'd get uh, angry, do a lot of yelling, that kind of stuff. I appreciate you touching on that. You know, to this day, I would still say that the telltale number one sign for me that my mental health is slipping is exactly what you're talking about. It, it I become very irritable, you know, short tempered. And for yourself, Murray, you know, did you find that when you're in even the place of work, you can, as you say, you use the words present well, you know, showing on the outside that everything's fine, but then sometimes you can remove that proverbial mask when you come home. And then when you were irritable, did that also potentially fuel feelings of guilt? You know, I, that's one of the questions they always ask you, right? It's uh, when you're doing one of those depression questionnaires is, do you feel guilty? 
Um, you know, I can't say that I, I do. Um, you know, I think one of the things you have to do is forgive yourself, right? Um, and, you know, I, I probably did, but uh, I mean, that's one of the things I've had to work out and work on. You know, I think a lot of people as they go through their recovery, a part of that is, is forgiving yourself and uh, getting rid of that guilt. Yeah. And before we get into this whole recovery process, let's back up here a little bit because, you know, when you basically you were given the ultimatum, right? Bev said you either see a doctor or you see yourself out the door. And what did you choose initially? I chose to go out the door. So I uh, uh, went to uh, kind of a cheap motel and spent a couple nights there. Um, and began to think a little better of it because, uh, you know, then I stayed in the friend's basement for another week. And, you know, after a while, um, you start to think uh, what's important to you. So fortunately, I was able to uh, say, okay, I'll go get the help. And uh, so we were able to put it back together and, uh, you know, start fresh. And even in that quest for help, you bring up when you share your story. You often bring up the University of the University Bridge, which is actually not very far at all from mm -hmm. the Royal Univ University Hospital. How difficult was it for you to walk over that bridge and actually get the help that you needed? Well, of course, that came along like eleven years later. Mm. I mean, when we're talking about the help, uh, we're talking about two thousand six. So we're talking. Uh, the help was to go to my GP initially and, uh, you know, finally admit out loud to a stranger, well, you know, not a stranger, but uh, that I was having problems. And uh, of course, she was very sympathetic. And uh, so I got put on my first uh, psychiatric drug, uh, citalopram, which is an antidepressant. So that was the beginning of the whole road. Even, I guess, when that journey started, having to see a formal professional, was there still a piece of you that was in denial? Was there a lot of fear for you to see, um, you know, a professional that very first time? Or how did you even navigate through some of those emotions that surfaced? Yeah, it was really hard. It was kind of like I was in a daze uh, because, you know, all of those feelings, you know, I'm talking about the, the shame that you would feel, uh, my generation would feel because uh, we were finally admitting we had a problem. So, you know, I remember sitting in the doctor's office. I kind of was in a daze when she was talking to me. When I had to go buy the antidepressants, I went to a pharmacy on the other side of town so nobody would recognize me. Um, and when they gave it to me, I thought, oh, my God, they're judging me, you know, like, uh, and now it's kind of like, yeah, give me this month's pills, you know. <laughs> so, but, you know, at first it was difficult. And uh, swallowing that first pill, um, you know, that was a, that was a big occasion. Well, and for anyone who's tuning in, who is maybe at that stage that you were and who has that, maybe it's not even fear, but that embarrassment. And I can totally relate to that. I had such a hard time accepting that I needed medication initially to help with some of my diagnoses and I fought mm -hmm. it and then I'd quit. And then, you know, that caused some problems, but how were you able to just get to that place of acceptance? that maybe you just need to take some medication to help? Well, the thing was, is that the medication did help. Okay, so all of the, all the worries about it, um, 
it it really did make a difference in my life. It wasn't the perfect drug for me, but I mean, it really made it easier to not get irritable, not fly off the handle. So it wasn't like I, I really, you know, had to struggle with it. It just, uh, it just kind of came naturally. And then, of course, as the years went on, other drugs came on, other diagnoses came on. So, um, so initially, I was diagnosed with uh, depression. And what was it? Three and a half years later, I finally got a psychiatrist appointment because it does take a long time. Mm. And uh, I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And so then I was put on uh, a mood stabilizer, which is kind of like that standard for, uh, for bipolar. And when you got that diagnosis of bipolar, did it start to put some of the puzzle pieces together for you? Because to get that diagnosis, obviously you were already having those periods of mania and and like did that help provide clarity as to the why you know it's uh it's funny like being diagnosed with depression it's kind of like yeah but it didn't really put my life together the diagnosis of bipolar it was kind of like oh and later on i was diagnosed with adhd and i went oh okay so it was kind of like all of a sudden um, you have this scaffold uh, on which to hang your life so it all makes sense. Before, it's kind of like you have to rationalize everything and create this story that doesn't really, really fit together. As soon as I was diagnosed with bipolar, it was like, oh, that's it. That's why. That's exactly it. The why. And and I think that's exactly why information is power. The For me too, Marie, when I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, I'm you know, first of all, there is that, uh, I guess, embarrassment. But as soon as I went to a library, and I remember picking up a book and reading, it just, it helped offer some clarity. Because for so many people who struggle, it, it's like, we also feel as though we're the only ones, we don't want to talk about our emotions. Were there times for you where you just felt like you were the only one having these thoughts? No, I, I have to say, I felt like really positive. Um, you know, one of the problems with being diagnosed is I think um, there's a tendency to really um, identify with your diagnosis. Mm. And I think that's what I did early on. I kind of over-identified. It's kind of like, well, I'm bipolar. So, um, you know, all of these things, whereas, you know, no, I, I have a diagnosis, but I'm still the same person. Um, so um, I never really had a problem telling friends and family that, but um, I never told like, you know, casual acquaintances or students or anybody else uh, that I'd had that diagnosis. Okay. So 2006 was the initial meeting or appointment with the GP. Yep. You were on numerous medications for years, but then things started to fall apart slowly. Yes. Yeah. So, um, you know, uh, bipolar and stress, probably not a very good mixture. Hmm. And uh, so for some strange reason, I became the associate dean of my college. Uh, and so, of course, that uh, piled on stress that I, you know, really wasn't uh, capable of handling at that time. And so sometime around 2015, um, I took a short break with a depression break and then I went on long term disability. So I was on disability for almost two years. And I know that for a lot of individuals, we tie up our identity in the work that we do. And so for yourself, having lost work, did that also interfere with, you know, who, who are you? And, and did that, was that maybe part of what 
brought you down into a darker place. Well, yeah, it's kind of like you get to the point where after two years, it's like, am I ever going to go back? Is this the end? Is this the rest of my life? Um, so, yeah, just, you know, bit by bit, it's uh, you start to lose things. Uh, so, um, yeah, I got to a pretty dark place. And see, there's a lot of individuals who have a hard time wrapping their head around how is it that somebody can arrive at the place where they would actually potentially take their own life and you were there. Mm -hmm. Like how, how, how do you bring people into that world as best you can so that there can be somewhat of a greater understanding? You know, um, suicide for me, and I think for a lot of people is the most difficult thing to talk about, right? It's not, it's not an easy subject, but, I do feel that there are situations and uh, mental illnesses where suicide is like it's it makes sense. It's like you get to that place and all of a sudden it's kind of like, yeah, this is this makes sense. This is the answer that I've been looking for. Uh, you know, so I don't think most people realize how dark that situation has to be before you come to the conclusion that you know, that's the right option for you. Uh, but for that person at that time, um, it's, it's usually a very logical uh, decision that they're making. It's, it's tough on everybody around them. But for that person right then, that's what makes sense to them. So for you, Murray, being in that frame of mind, is that what eventually led you to take that walk to the university bridge? Yeah, that's it. I finally got to a point. Um, school was starting up again. So, of course, I began teaching in the fall. So this would be sometime in September. So, again, it was like another year uh, being out of things. So I thought, you know, that that was a bad time. So, yeah, sometime uh, on a kind of drizzly afternoon on a Saturday uh, afternoon, it was uh, went around uh, looking at bridges for uh, uh, figuring out which one was the tallest and uh when I got to the university bridge, um, I knew how close uh, the hospital was. So I instead, I walked over to University Hospital and did it. Going to the doctor was hard. What I did in the university hospital was harder. Yeah. And you had the courage to walk through those doors. And what I guess kind of hurts my heart, Murray, is when uh, you know we initially spoke and you're sharing your story. And I just picture you already obviously feeling vulnerable, fragile. You get into the emergency room and you go, you know, those of us who've done this, you go through the robotic checklist and it's hard enough to admit that you're struggling with your mental health, but then you were kind of just left in a waiting room for a while. And then Murray, you almost left. You know, um, I, I, if you've had experience uh, with a loved one or yourself going to the emergency room uh, of the hospital, um, it's horrible. First of all, I mean, you're not in very good shape. And so you have to get in line behind everybody and it's noisy, it's crowded. It's not a place you want to be. I finally talked to the person and told her what was going on. And she said, um, you'll have to wait. We'll, we'll find somebody and we'll get back to you. So here I am, I'm sitting um, in this, you know, down this hall in all of these seats and uh, for about an hour. And 
like you can't believe how loud and noisy and dirty and so finally I thought you know maybe maybe I should just get out of here uh, I'll go home and so I started walking out the door and uh, the woman behind the desk came out and she said you know um, you know if if you want to get help um, we'll get you help but you're going to have to work and you're going to have to stay here and it's going to be it's not going to be good but you'll really have to uh, you really have to work at it and so I went back to the seat and, uh, you know, later on, they get you into one of these little rooms uh, that has like a curtain on it so you can stay in there. But of course, it's really, it's very noisy. Uh, uh, now, for a while, I know they had a psychiatric emergency ward. And uh, so I've seen that one. And that was a much better situation. I was, I think it's it closed down, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, That's I, I love... It's it says a few things to me. I mean, it speaks to how ill-equipped the system is at times like that. And the <laughs> it's like there's a tiny little light in so much darkness, and and so we grab onto it. And then if you have to wait and wait, that that light kind of begins to fade away. And thank God that that woman had a clear understanding of the situation, had some empathy, was able to connect with you at a personal level and get mm -hmm. you to stay. And I think, Murray, did she not even say, is there someone that you can call to just help yeah. help you wait that out? Yeah, because I was by myself. So um, I did give my wife Bev a call. And uh, so she came and joined me. And of course, having somebody to uh, uh, wait with you is always easier. So that was good. But uh, yeah, it's not, it's not a great experience, especially when you're going through that kind of crisis. And then... Close by, for those individuals who aren't familiar with RUH, you have the Debay Center, Psychiatric Center. Mm -hmm. And how was it for you when you were informed that you would be admitted into the Debay Center? What, what kind of feelings were stirring up within? Um, it wasn't that I was told I would be let or put in the Debay Center. It was kind of I had to fight to go into the Debay Center. It was oh, kind really? of like... Well, you know, um, we don't know if you really need to go in there and, you know, there's no beds. And uh, so it was something you really had to insist. Um, so I I think a lot of people are just kind of turned around and said, sent home because what are there, 56 places, I think, at the Dubai. And if you go to the front of the Dubai, they've got like this whiteboard with how many spaces are available. I've never seen a space available. So it's kind of like one person leaves, another person goes in. But luckily I, I did get in. Um, I spent a night in a broom closet, which they had kind of converted into a patient area. I'm, I'm not making that up. It was a broom closet, uh, but they got a bed in there. So I spent a night there. And when I was in Dubai, um, I didn't always have a bed there. A couple of nights I had to sleep in the uh, ECT therapy room. Uh, so that's the electroconvulsive therapy room where they uh, uh, do the uh, electroshock therapies. That was kind of uh, an odd experience as well. So, <laughs> Well, our mutual friend Jay Blakely was on the show not too long ago talking about some of those experiences with ECT. And, you know, Murray, it's interesting, Clint Clint is tuning in right now, Clint Malarchuk, and he just says, relate so much. And, you know, there's a man right there who has had one hell of a battle. And it it's that word relate. You know, it's like that, that there's so much power 
in being able to connect with someone else's story. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I know even when it comes to connection, you you talk about meeting with a younger psychiatric nurse. And when you're trying to be vulnerable and open up and they're asking these questions, you know, part of you is thinking, well, what, what the hell do you know? And mm-hmm. yet that individual opened up about their own struggles, yes? Yeah, um, you know, one of the things, when you tell people you've been in the debate center, um, a lot of them kind of go, oh, you know, that's too bad. And it's kind of like, it turned out, I mean, this was probably one of the best experiences I've ever had. It was it was hard, but I mean, for what I needed, it was it was perfect. And you're right. So every shift change, the psychiatric nurse who was assigned to you would spend half hour, 45 minutes just talking to you. And yeah, you're right. It's kind of like, so who is this person? But first, uh, first guy who was my nurse, uh, he said, yes, uh, you know, like uh, I, you know, I have a diagnosis of my own. And uh, so, you know, and uh, that's why I'm working here because I'm really interested in mental health. And it wasn't that uncommon. I think there were a few other people as well. So it was great. I I met people who... uh, you know, knew where I was and they, you know, uh, could talk to me in a very good way. I think for me, when I hear that, it it just validates that we really have no clue what other people are battling, do we? You know, we, we, we place these judgments and opinions and case in point. And Murray, what's, this is bizarre. This is wild. Life is quite the journey because I think it was, Correct me if I'm wrong, but like one week after you had returned home from the debate center, you go and attend a mental health event at the University of Saskatchewan, and I'm the keynote speaker. That's right. <laughs> and and here, here we are. Yeah, so it was Be Well Day, and of course, there was the keynote speaker. And uh, so, uh, yeah, I saw you, and I actually attended uh, a session you did in the afternoon. Okay. And you- you know what really struck me? There was like, I don't know, 20, 30 women, and I was the only guy besides you. And <laughs> at, at the end, I asked you, is it always like this? Did guys come to this? And you said, no. And that's why we're sitting here today talking about that, because, you know, that's the problem, right? That's that's fascinating. So we you actually approached me after? No, it was a, there was a question answer period, uh, you know, right after. So people were asking questions. And so that was my question. Oh, wow. And, you know, that's the thing. Uh, it's sad because, okay, that was maybe three and a half years ago. And yeah, still, when yeah. there are events around mental health, boy, as men, we have a very hard time attending. You know, uh, what I love about you, Murray, is man, you have turned the corner. You know, when when you left the debate center, when you went home and when you returned as a professor, as a, as an educator at the university, you said, I'm done. I'm done with the hiding. And, and you started to just share your story. Yep. Um, when I went back, um, I've told you this story, is I thought I can go down the hall and I can tell everybody the same story over and over, or I can have my own little seminar. And so I, um, we have a weekly seminar in my department. And uh, so I was the speaker. And so what I spoke about was 
my own battle with and my own journey with mental health and, uh, uh, you know, some insights into it. So that was the first time I ever gave one of these talks. And I was shaken before I uh, started the first one. Uh, but we usually have like about 30 or 40 people in a room that holds 70. It was packed. There are people standing. There are people out in the hall, people who weren't even in my department uh, who came to see this. And one of the things that's always surprised me is, is that telling your story has such power. Uh, you know, you think, well, so what? You know, this is my just my life. And uh, But telling people, you know, who may have uh, had their own struggles and have not dealt with them, uh, it does have power. We've talked about this a lot, but at the end of the day, if you give yourself permission to be vulnerable, then the ripple effect is inevitable. And that's what started happening. Yes, like all of a sudden, one by one, students, other people that you work with started to say those those two, I don't know, probably the two most powerful words, right? The me too. Me too. And you opened up a brand new conversation that obviously needed to take place. Yep. And so um, one of the things I do now is I give a lot of talks to student groups and every class I have, I give my patented the talk, as I like to call it. Um, and I, you know, I give them the talk about mental illness. And I'm always uh, amazed at the response because all of a sudden their professor is just a human being. And they're all feeling anxious and depressed uh, at university. You know, and, you know, I think by doing that, it, it says, hey, it's okay. Everybody's like that. You know, um, you can still be successful. It's not going to ruin your life. I love that. I love how transparent you've become. And I'm, I think even last week, did you not deliver five different presentations on the topic of mental health? Yeah, I don't know why. It's kind of like uh, just all kind of came together. But, um, yeah, I did a couple or I did one um with some other people I work with. And then I did a bunch of student groups. So, uh, yeah. What's the most common question that you're asked, Murray, after you do share your story or talk about mental illness? You know, for my students, they really, I don't get a lot of questions. You know what I get is at the end, um, I get, they all say thank you. They come down and they, they thank me for doing it. A few will say, um, you know, uh, talk about their own struggles with mental illness. Uh, but then I get emails, um, you know, once I, I said that 2% of students uh, at the University of Saskatchewan, I think it's uh, just under that, 2% have a plan for or have attempted suicide. And you think about that, that's like 300 people. Uh, and so I get emails uh, saying I was one of those 2%. Mm. Um you know, I find out people have ADHD and, you know, as an instructor, that's really valuable. Uh, I'm not going to make any judgment on you if you have ADHD, uh, far from it, because I do too. So it's, uh, you know, it's really helpful as a, as a teacher to, you know, know who you're talking to. But I think at first, no, you don't get a lot of questions because it's a bit shocking to sit there and... Um, Oh, I should tell you this. I was I um, because this year all the teaching is online. It's it's kind of like what I'm doing right now. So I've got I'm on WebEx. So what I've got is you know a hundred squares instead of the just the two. 
And so I'm giving my talk and maybe they didn't realize I could see the comments. Uh, and uh, one of the students wrote, should I be worried? And I thought, <laughs> probably. But you know, you are you and you just present as your authentic self. And I think that that's what people are drawn to. That's what people love. When when I was teaching at the college, I mean, <clears throat> and my wife, Tanya, is so wonderful with this. She always just helps me to go back to the fact, just be you, just be you. You know, people will love you for you. Because I would go off on these tangents and, you know, Murray, for two two people, two men who struggle with ADD or ADHD, whatever, we're doing pretty damn good. Yeah, we're doing good. <laughs> I mean, we're 28 minutes in. We, I think we've pretty much stayed on point. Well, but most people do not understand what ADHD is. Oh, you're going to the, you're going down the road of hyper-focus, I feel. Yeah, uh, that, uh, I mean, yeah, there's all of the negative things, but you know, ADHD gives you some superpowers and mm -hmm. you know, I, I do think that, uh, humanity would be in caves if it wasn't for mental illness. If it weren't for autism and ADHD and uh, bipolar, we'd uh, probably, uh, yeah, still be sitting around a campfire. Sounds like you need to write a book on those uh, those themes. Uh, I'm writing a book, but, you know, every so often I, I think about going back to it. Uh, <laughs> okay, so here's my ADHD thing is, um, have you ever heard of NaNoWriMo? No. Okay, no. it's a it's a uh, world contest, and it's you write a book in a month, so it's in November. So in the month of November, you write a book from scratch, and it has to be more than a hundred thousand words. And that's gross. I did that's it. A lot. So I wrote a hundred thousand words in a month. That's ADHD. That's hyper focus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then you probably slept for a week. Uh, no, no. It's just I kind of put it away and. You know, every so often I look look at it, but yeah, maybe I'll have to do something about it one day. Wow. Well, it's great to hear that you've turned to writing again. I know that, you know, this COVID year has been quite the ride for a lot of people, but it's also provided us with an opportunity to pick up old hobbies. And I know that you you were a musician for eight years and, and mm. I know that it's something that has also assisted you with your wellness. What are some other things that work for you or that might work for other people to try to to make sure that they can strengthen their mental wellness? You know, um, I think exercise is a key, and I think that's one of the problems with COVID. A lot of us just came and sat on the couch, and I, I heard we all put on two pounds a month. Uh, that's the average in the States. You know, I, I think recently I've started uh, uh, getting more active. So I was telling you today I went for my 10-kilometer walk. Uh, so I, I think getting outside, staying active, uh, that's a huge thing. Love it. I know that for you, you've said talking is the greatest medicine, you know, and you've said this before, the story, there's nothing more powerful or sacred than our story. And mm -hmm. it's just mind blowing to me. You know, when, when I sit back and just reflect on your journey and all those years of silence and actually how old were you? Were you like 15 when, when you were actually hospitalized for depression, but it was kind of just hidden as what meningitis is that is that right yeah so um i was feeling crappy so they put me in a hospital and they looked for some kind of physical disease mm -hmm. uh after a couple of weeks didn't find it so i was uh, finally diagnosed with depression 
And my parents came to my room and they told me I'd been diagnosed. And that was the last time anybody in my family ever mentioned mental illness or depression or anything. So a couple of years ago, I told my sisters that I had been diagnosed in my hospital stay when I was 15. And they said, well, no, you had meningitis. No. And, you know, you wonder if you'd done something about it when you were 15, your life would have been quite different. 100%. And, and yet it just speaks to the fact that so frequently, especially as you said earlier on for your generation, it was just swept under the rug. It wasn't talked about. And unfortunately, though, what that did is it, it caused you to suffer in silence for a very long time. However, you obviously were able to look at that, rewrite it, and now share your story with others. And Murray, you just have my utmost respect for that. Is there a way that people could potentially connect with you if if they wanted to just share some of their experiences with you? Yeah, um, of course I'm on Facebook too, but I don't wanna become friends with everybody in the world. But um, I guess my email at the University of Saskatchewan is the easiest way. Um, and of course it's easy. It's my first name, last name at usask.ca. So murray.drew at usask.ca. Okay. Okay. Well, I appreciate your time, Murray. Thank you so much for the great work that you're doing, putting a face to this, especially for us as men. You take really good care of yourself. You too, Al. Thank you so much, everyone, for taking the time to tune in. Take good care. Thank you.